Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi and a very good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be in your company. At last, you may say, I've been away for a couple of weeks and I do apologize for that, not having been here. Hope you enjoyed the fill-in stuff that was uh, in my stead. But it is great to be back with you live and in person coming to you live today from the High FM studios here in Johannesburg. It is just 10 past two on this beautiful Wednesday here in the Highfelt. Of course, lots of rain around and uh, the aftermath of the big uh, hailstorm of uh, 2022 and all the other stuff that we're busy dealing with and load shedding, etc., etc., etc. But great, therefore, to be able to spend the next 40 minutes or so, in uh, some meaningful discussion, discussion about things that are of use to us long-term, not just for today, not just for tomorrow, and not just for this week or the week thereafter, but rather for all time, because we're talking about things that have to do with our Judaism, with our heritage, and of course, Torah. And that is eternal. And these are the things that... um, not only take us away to a different space in terms of our headspace um, now and <coughs> as many people are turning towards their vacation destinations, their holiday destinations, it's wonderful to be able to share some thoughts with you in whatever frame of mind you may be and hopefully we can lift spirits and we can get involved in some meaningful stuff. So let's first of all take a look at today. Today is the 20th day, believe it or not, already, the 20th day in the month of Kislev. It seems like just a day or two ago that we went into the month of Kislev, and here we are already three weeks in, 20 days in the month of Kislev. And 20 days in the month of Kislev is an anniversary of note for a number of significant reasons. First of all, let's go all the way back. Let's go from uh, the earliest that we have on record to uh, the later Occurrences, And let's talk about in the year 347 before the Common Era. So we're going back two and a half thousand years. What was happening today, two and a half thousand years ago? Well, I'll put you out of your misery. It was Ezra, who was the head of the Sanhedrin and the leader of the Jewish people. At the time of the building of the second Beit HaMikdash, the time of the building of the second temple, he made a historic address to a three-day assembly of Jews in Jerusalem. So, you know, you've often thought about the fact that maybe your rabbi speaks a little bit too long in shul. Here was a three-day address from Ezra, the head of the Sanhedrin, leader of the Jewish people, spoke to them for three days in Jerusalem, and he exhorted them to adhere to the teachings of the Torah, to dissolve their interfaith marriages. Jews were on the verge at that time of complete assimilation following the 70-year exile in Babylon. Exile has always been a difficulty for the Jewish people, but not the least of which was that very first exile, the exile that we went into after the first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, went off into Babylon. Things crumbled. Things fell apart. The Jewish people for the first time were confronting exile. They were confronting uh, Jews being in foreign lands, people being involved in foreign relationships, and all of these things led to a real watering down of the Jewish people. Um, it was something they'd never confronted before, and Ezra made it his pride and point and uh, notion at the very, very time of the Jewish people coming back into Israel, the building of the temple, um, a return one of the things that he had to address was the fact that there were these interfaith marriages that were happening, that people were 
having children who were not Jewish, etc., and it was leading to a great amount of assimilation. He begged them to dissolve these marriages. He exhorted them to adhere to the teachings of the Torah, and this was the address. Starting to be delivered, or started to be delivered today, those two and a half thousand years ago, on the date of Chof Kislev, the 20th of Kislev. Now, kind of as a counterbalance to that, Today marks the second day of a two-day celebration called Yutet and Chav Kislev. What happened there? Well, if we go back to um, the year uh, 1796, I think it is. No, it's a little earlier than that. Uh, The um, Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, it was on uh, the 19th of Kislev, the Alter Rebbe Rabbi Shnir Zalman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad Hasidism, was released from imprisonment. Now, it may come as a surprise for you to know that uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe's spent time in prison. Unfortunately, they were all arrested for the same thing over a period of many, many years and times. It just showed their courage and what they stood up against in Russia, first of all against the Tsar and his ilk, and later on against the communists and theirs. And they were imprisoned for the spreading of Judaism. Somehow they always fell foul of the law, first of all, the Christocentric uh, Christian theology of the Russian church under the Tsars, which uh, was very, very punishing and very, very brutal. And uh, the Rebbe's stood up for uh, Yiddishkeit, for Judaism, in harsh and difficult conditions. The Alter Rebbe was imprisoned, and he was released after a period of time in jail in Russia. He was released on the 19th of Kislev. It was the day that marked the beginning, really, of the release of Hasidism, of Hasidus, of the teachings of Hasidus into the world. Because, of course, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnir Zalman, had written and was the composer of the blueprint of all that intellectual, as well as emotional and spiritual Hasidus that he released into the world. And it was the date that kind of marked it. But he was re- the announcement of his release was on the 19th of Kislev. He actually was only released much later in the day, going into already the 20th. And so Hasidim around the world since then celebrate the 19th and the 20th of Kislev. And I guess similar to the long day of Rosh Hashanah, we celebrate it as a one-day although it spans two days, event of Yutet and Chav Kislev. And it is aptly known as the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidim, of, of Hasidism. It is the Rosh Hashanah, it's the foundation. It is the very start of it all. And this Rosh Hashanah of Hasidism actually took place and is marked today with the liberation of Rabbi Shneer Zalman, the blossoming particularly of his um, philosophy of Chabad Hasidism, Um, And uh, this is the date on which we find ourselves today. The way that we have this celebration is by Fabrengans, by Hasidic gatherings, an increase of commitment to the ways and teachings of Hasidism. And of course, in uh, Chabad custom today, penitential prayers, Tachanun and so on, are omitted from our prayer services. So that is the way that it's celebrated a great day and a powerful day, a powerful spiritual day. If you think about going back to Ezra and his speech to the people of how they had to adhere to Torah and move into a different realm as they came back and founded the second Beit HaMikdash, then the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidism. It is also the date in 1796 of the publishing of the book 
Tanya, which was known as the Torah of Hasidism or the Bible of Hasidism, magnum opus of Rabbi Shneel Zalman of Liadi. The first printing took place appropriately on this day in 1796 and therefore released into the world this great philosophy and so on um, throughout our times and throughout our generations. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. And it's great to be back with you. And yes, Chosan and Kala and the singing and dancing, which leads to the very festive dimension of this month of Kislev. Very festive because we are about to begin celebrating the wonderful, beautiful Chag of Chanukah. And Chanukah begins, of course, on Sunday evening, this coming Sunday evening. For eight nights, we light our Hanukkah menorah. The Hanukkah menorah lit each night, every evening um, of Hanukkah, bringing um, a great joy, great festivities, great festival feeling, um, and most importantly, a great amount of light to this otherwise seemingly dark period of time. We've got to remember, of course, um, just to reflect on the fact that in the northern climes and northern uh, hemisphere, for instance, particularly in Israel, um, it gets dark very early and the Hanukkah menorahs, and there's a lot of darkness in the practical sense, and the menorahs actually light up the night. And it is one of the essential ingredients of Hanukkah, this idea of lighting the night. The best time to light the menorah, of course, is <laughs> just before nightfall. And as we come just before nightfall, we light the menorah. It should burn into the night. The idea of lighting up the darkness, which in fact is always the job of a Jew. It is our job, and it's one of the reasons why we are closer linked with the moon as a symbol of our calendar rather than the sun, because we are the ones who light up the night. We are the lighters of light in the darkness. And this, in fact, is the essential ingredient of the Hanukkah festival, the lighting of the menorah, the lighting of candles. It should be done each evening, as we said, starting from Sunday evening. The exact times, of course, you can find out from various uh, shuls or from uh, websites and so on, the exact time to light. So we're not going to go into that kind of detail exactly this evening. But one starts Sunday evening, carries on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, where the menorah is lit before you light the Shabbat candles. Saturday, where the menorah is lit once we have come home and made Havdollah and then the menorah, of course, is lit for the last night on the following Sunday evening. So it is an eight-night festival celebrating the great miracles and wonders that took place um, all those years ago in the Hanukkah story. So what is Hanukkah? Hanukkah, if we actually take the word Hanukkah, it is uh, a word, as with many things in Hebrew, it's a word with multiple reasons, multiple translations. What does it actually mean? Where does it actually come from? Why is the festival called Hanukkah? By the way, there's something unique about this festival in that it is only hinted at in the Torah. We'll talk about the hint perhaps a little bit later on. But it is one of those that is not part of the actual written Torah at all. And you might say, well, nor is Purim. 
but Purim is because Megillat Esther was canonized into the Tanakh um, as being part of um, the what we what we refer to as the written Torah, including Megillat Esther, uh, which made it into that canon. But um, Hanukkah is not. It is referred to in the Talmud. Certainly, it's mentioned there, and it's certainly mentioned, and it's certainly um, something that we have in our oral law um, in many places. And there is a hint, as we said, to Hanukkah early on in the Torah as well. But now. <laughs> What is Hanukkah? What does it actually mean? Well, the word comes from several different meanings. Number one is it is about um, the word Hanu, which means that they camped or they stopped fighting. Remember, there was a war. There was a battle going on between the Jewish people and the Assyrian Greeks who had come in with a philosophical, much more than an actual physical, although there was a physical war as well, and they had come in with this idea that they were going to Hellenize, that they were going to, well, colonize in a Hellenistic way the entire Israel and all the Jewish people, and they were going to put paid to the notion of spirituality, of godliness, of holiness, of all the things that the temple stood for. And uh, this was their battle, this was their war, and of course, uh, not unusual for the Jewish people to face onslaughts, but here we face the onslaught of the Assyrian Greeks and everything that they stood for and everything that they were trying to do to de-spiritualize, to de-sanctify, um, to defile, to make um, a, an imprint of their Hellenistic Assyrian Greek ideas on Jews and on Judaism, and particularly in the temple and its surrounds. Um, now, the uh, famous Maccabees, the uh, Yehuda and his people, and the Hashmonaim uh, rose up against the marauding Greek Assyrian Greeks. They chased them out of the country. Uh, they got the temple back. And Chanu Chafei, on the 25th of Kislev, the war, the war came to an end. So Chanu means that they camped, Chafei, 25. They camped on the 25th. On the 25th of Kislev, which is coming up, as we said, on Sunday evening, they camped. They stopped. They stopped the battle. The war was over. They'd managed to gain victory. And then, of course, great miracles um, of their own, which we'll talk about in a moment, took place in the temple itself. But this was a miracle in and of itself. The fact that a band of uh, religious men, a, a group of, uh, uh, I often tell people when we think about the fact that these were uh, yeshiva bachrim, these weren't uh, trained fighters, these weren't guys who'd done military service, these weren't guys who were big and strong and uh, battle-hardened, but they managed to thwart the uh, real onslaught of the Assyrian Greeks, chase them out of the country, uh, get them off the Temple Mount, and uh, rededicate the temple. And then we come to, of course, the second meaning for the word Chanukah. Chanukah, you, many of you may have heard of the concept of Chanukah Tabayit, which means dedication. The dedication of a house. When you move into a new home, you should have, it, often people do it at the time that they put up their mezuzot, you have a special little celebration called Chanukah Tabayit, the dedication of the home. It's a beautiful thing to do, to bring brachot, to bring brachas into your house, to bring holiness into your house, to... Make a resolve that this house is going to be a place that's filled with holiness, uh, Judaism, Torah, mitzvahs, and so on, called Chanukah Tabayit, the dedication of the house. Well, once we had gotten rid of all the schmutz, all the dirt, all the defilement that the Assyrian Greeks had brought into the place, including idols and uh, all sorts of other stuff, uh, which is... Uh, 
negative and despicable and so on. We managed to get all of that stuff out. We managed to rededicate the temple, to cleanse it, and rededicate it. It was called Chanukah, the rededication or the dedication of the Beit HaMikdash, which took place, also called Chanukah. There are several other great and wonderful reasons, but let's talk a little bit more about these. Let's talk about the um, the concept of lighting the menorah and where that all came from. Well, of course, um, when the Jewish people, we know the story, when they came into uh, the Beit HaMikdash, into the temple, um, they realized that the Greeks had actually defiled all the oil. Now, to defile the oil sounds as though they did something disgusting to the oil. Well, they may well have done that, but really what their defilement was, was they broke the seals of uh, the Kohen Gadol. The high priest had a seal that he put on uh, these cruises or vats or jars of oil, and each jar of oil, which was made from a real pristine, beautiful virgin olive oil, the very uh, first drops of the oil, Shemen Zayit Zach, that was uh, used in the manufacture of this oil, um, made from olives in Yerushalayim. This was all stored in the Beit HaMikdash, in the temple, and each one was measured to fill the menorah and that the menorah <coughs> should burn in the temple. Remember, the menorah burnt in the temple. A seven-branched candelabra burnt in the temple every single day. And the Kohanim used to light it. They used to make sure that it, was, that it burnt from day to day. And that was um, a light not only of uh, brightness and inspiration, but it was also a light that lit up the whole of Yerushalayim. And there were miraculous things about the lights of the menorah to start off with, um, they all pointed inwards. You know, a menorah of seven branches has three on the right and three on the left and one in the center. All the flames pointed inwards. Now, you can't do that even if you try to make all the flames uh, point inwards. It was one of the miracles of the menorah. And this was how it burnt. This was what it looked like. Now, remember, this was such a sacred and such a beautiful and such an essential ingredient of the Jewish people at the time. And they had the special oil, which the Greeks now defiled. They broke all the seals. Now, the Jewish people knew very well that they could have used any oil to light the menorah, even in inverted commas, defiled oil. They could have used it. According to Halakha, they were allowed to use it. But they said no. This was actually the campaign of these Assyrian Greeks. They wanted to try and prove to the Jewish people and to the world that, you know what? You guys keep on going on about spirituality, about spiritual stuff, about the oil having a sanctity to it and so on. We Hellenist Greeks believe in the physical, the material world. After all, it was from the Hellenists that things like the Olympic Games came about. We believe in the power of the body. We believe in the power of the physical, the material. That's really what it's all about. Your stuff about saying that everything has a soul, nonsense. Your stuff about saying that every, everything can be made holy, nonsense. There's no difference. There is no difference between this oil and that oil. You take it and you look at it, I don't know, under the proverbial microscope. I don't know if they had microscopes in those days, but you can look at it in whichever way you wish. And check it out, you'll see that the oil is exactly the same. What are you talking about that it's got a certain sanctity to it? And this is the only stuff you can use in the menorah. We'll show you. You use regular oil, and regular oil will burn exactly the same. Now imagine they came into the temple, the battle-weary fellows who'd been fighting the Assyrian Greeks. They found all the oil. It was defiled. It was sitting there with um, broken seals. 
And they asked the halachic authorities, I guess, at the time, and they said, you can light any, any oil. But they said, wait, wait one second. If we light any oil now, we're going to be in trouble. Suddenly some guy comes running in, I guess, and says, you know what? We found one jar, one cruise, one vat, one jar of oil that is obviously separated as they were to light for one day in the menorah. We have that one and... They said, well, obviously there is a sign. This is unbelievable. We've got one. Because we refuse to use anything else, we're going to like that one. And uh, we're going to get about manufacturing the proper olive oil as soon as we possibly can. But um, what I'm going to have to do, or what we're going to have to do is just light it and hope for the best. But we're refusing. We are refusing to light any other oil in this menorah. And they put that olive oil in and they lit the menorah. They kindled it. And amazingly, it burnt, as we know, for eight days. Now, why eight days? Well, eight days was the time that it took to make the new olive oil. It burnt until they could get new olive oil. And it carried on burning day after day after day. Miraculously, it lasted for eight days instead of for one. So this was, first and foremost, a miracle. But the incredible thing is that you had all this oil sitting there which possibly could have been used, but it is almost as though we need to say that God backed this kind of enthusiasm, this kind of um, incredible power that the Jewish people invested in themselves and in their mitzvahs. They said, we're not compromising. We're not going to compromise. We know we could step down. We know we could rely on the proverbial heter. We could do things in a way that is now allowed, but we're not going to. We are going to insist on doing things in the best possible way. You know, we come, came through a period of time now, last couple of years, as we all know, where there were all sorts of heterim. There was allowance to daven at home. There was allowance not to be with the minion. There was allowance not to say Kaddish, uh, if God forbid one needed to. But that was for then. It's not for now. And for now, we have to actually get back to our enthusiastic, in inverted commas, strictnesses. But these are the very things that drive us forward. And these are the things that draw the reaction of the miracles, of the miracles and wonder. We are continually begging God to go out of his way to do magnificent and wonderful and miraculous things for us. But what about our uh, attitude? Are we always going to rely on... The heter, are we always going to rely on the allowance, on the ability to circumvent a little bit, to do things in a leaner, cleaner, quieter kind of a way? Are we going to burn the regular oil in our menorah? Or are we going to insist on having the best? And this is something that Hanukkah really represents, where we went for the best, and therefore God responded in the best possible fashion, sending us these great miracles, not only to be able to overrun the uh, great and powerful Assyrian Greek army, but in be being able to light the menorah, being able to rededicate our temple, being able to do all of those things, and this really for once and for all, really kick-started the bringing of great light back into the world by this menorah and by Yehuda Maccabi and all his men. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So as we said, practically speaking, for the festival of Hanukkah, each night we light the menorah. That's the mitzvah 
of the day. And when we light the menorah, the entire family should be present. It should be done early enough that all the children should be present. That's particularly relevant in uh, this part of the world when it's summertime and it gets dark a lot later. We should light the menorah (coughs) early enough that everybody should be present, but it should be late enough that it should burn well into the night. So it's got to burn after nightfall. Nightfall at the moment is probably round about, uh, in Joburg, round about 7.15, 7.20, somewhere around there. It's got to burn for about half an hour after that, and therefore we will confront, we will have a problem, for instance, when it comes to Friday night, when we've got to light quite a bit earlier, and we need to make sure that the menorah burns well into the night, but there's still time to talk about that perhaps next week. Let's talk about and think about the actual menorah. What must a menorah be? What must it look like? Well, you don't have to actually have a formal declared menorah. You can put your candles in a straight line and light them on a tabletop or on a piece of tin foil or in bottle caps or whatever it is that you, you may choose to light your menorah in. But the candles of the menorah should all be on the same level with one exception. The separate candle, the shamus, the one from which we actually... Some have the tradition of lighting all the others from it. The main idea of the shamus is that the candles of the menorah, it says specifically that we should not have any benefit from them. We can't read by them. We can't use them because it's load shedding. We can't use them um, to uh, cast light into a room, etc. The candles of Shabbos, you certainly can. But for the menorah, it says about them that we have them only to look at them. We observe them, we recognize the great miracles that they represent, but we are not allowed to utilize that light. And we therefore always have the tradition of lighting another candle separate from and on a different level from the others that are in your menorah, or as some people call it, a Chanukia. We need to make sure that that uh, candle is lit as well, just in case somebody uses the light. We have the uh, Shamus candle from which we can say that that was actually the light we benefited from and all the others were just there for us looking at it. So that should be on a different level. It should be clear that it's separate and anybody walking in should be able to see that tonight is the first or the second or the third or the fourth light by viewing the candles that are all on one level, that they're all the same. Ah, we can see that it is the fourth night of Hanukkah. We follow the tradition of Hillel. In the time of the great sages of Hillel and Shammai, in the schools of Hillel and Shammai, there was a difference of opinion as to how the menorah should be lit. Well, essentially, you can fulfill the obligation of lighting the menorah, lighting the candles of Hanukkah, by lighting one candle each night. But uh, Hillel said we should light one candle, on the second night we should light two, on the third night three, and so on, until on the last night we light eight. Shammai, who was his arch opponent really in philosophy and in the way that they thought, he said that it should be exactly in the reverse. On the first night you should light eight, the second night seven, and then six, five, four, three, two, and on the last night you light one. Well, what is the difference really if we think about it philosophically? What were they talking about? Hillel was of the opinion that we should take a look at what we've got and we should increase and each night light something extra. So Admire, look at the beautiful things that you have, the mitzvahs that you've accomplished, and tomorrow try and improve upon them and do a little bit more. Shammai was perhaps viewing things from the top down rather than from the bottom up, took a look at things from a potential point of view, and he said a little bit more harsh perhaps in the view, let's take a look at what we could have accomplished. Today I could have accomplished so much that on the first night is eight. I could accomplish eight lights of Hanukkah, eight 
wonderful mitzvahs that they represent and eight beautiful, beautiful things, let's light eight candles to represent those eight days. Once I've lost one of them, it's gone. And on the second night, I light seven. And so he was rather looking at potential rather than practical or actual. Hillel, much more acceptable, is the pattern that all Jews follow today and all around the world. And we're told when Mashiach will come, we will revert in many things. And this one being one of them to following the way of Shammai, when we'll understand a little bit more and we'll be able to hopefully fulfill a bit more of our potential and therefore light in that sort of reverse order. Eight on the first night, diminishing all the time. But let's go for Hillel right now. And each time, each night of Hanukkah, we light one extra candle on our menorah. First night, Sunday night, we'll do one. Monday night, two. Uh, Tuesday night, three. Until on the last night of Hanukkah, we'll have a beautiful full candelabra, a beautiful full menorah with eight candles burning. And then the Shamus being number nine, standing separate, watching God over all the others for the reasons we explained before. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. One of the most important things of every festival, of course, is what do we eat? <laughs> everybody wants to know what we eat. And what do we eat at Hanukkah time? Everybody thinks about, yes. Um, in this country, latkes, potato pancakes, fried in oil. Um, many overseas, particularly in Israel, they eat sufganiyot, which is donuts, also fried in oil. Um, and, of course, therein lies the answer, oily foods. Why? Because we're celebrating the miracle of the oil. And, uh, therefore, tradition has it that we eat oily things, potato latkes, um, and so on, which are wonderful and great and leave you feeling nice and oily uh, for the festival of Hanukkah. Originally, in fact, people used to eat cheese. Um, it's sort of faded a little bit, um, but certainly the, the uh, potatoes and uh, so on um, has faded a little bit. But if you really want to go back to real tradition, you eat cheese pancakes on Hanukkah, which is reminiscent of the dairy and intoxicating meal that the brave Yehudis Yehudis fed to the Greek general before she decapitated him in his sleep and saving her village. And this was all part of the Hanukkah story. So cheese and what it represents, um, the perhaps the purity, perhaps uh, the whiteness, uh, the cleansing and so on, that all had to do with Hanukkah as well. So whatever it is that you eat and however you celebrate in that realm, make sure you light your menorah. Light up the night. Bring the lights of Hanukkah uh, to your family and to everybody around you. And in that way, hopefully we can bring the light of Kedusha, of holiness that they represent, the light of spirituality that they represent. And hopefully by bringing a little bit more light into this otherwise dark world, we probably won't be lighting up enough to do away with loads shedding but we certainly will be load shedding in a completely different way and that is uh, kind of getting all of that stuff out of our heads and thinking about the beautiful positive energy of a festival of Hanukkah bringing light to the world in the most profound beautiful fantastic way I want to wish you a great week up ahead a beautiful Shabbos and a freilichen happy Hanukkah um, in the week that lies ahead of this one. Uh, look forward to being back with you same time, same place next week for another exciting episode of uh, Judaism 101.9.